Brothers and sisters, if you would this morning, turn with me in your Bibles to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we will be looking at chapter 15 and verses 33 to 41. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. Please then, if you would, hear with me the reading of God's Word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we, as we gather around the Word of God, we gather together to recount that all-sufficient death of Christ on Calvary's cross. A death sufficient to pay the debt for our crimes against God, although it was we who owed the debt. But instead, Christ went to the cross for treason when it was you and I who committed those great acts of treachery against our Maker. And because of our treason, Christ was made to suffer in an extraordinary manner. In a great way, He suffered humiliation and pain and suffering before the people of the world. If you recall, throughout the reading of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has been rejected as God's prophet. Right? They have twisted His words. They have ridiculed them and they have disbelieved them. Likewise, Christ has been rejected as king. Over the past few weeks, we've seen this. As uh, Pontius Pilate brings forth Jesus and Barabbas and he says to the crowd, who do you want me to release? The king of the Jews? Do you want me to release your king to you? And what is it that the people shout? Release Barabbas. And instead for Jesus, they say, crucify him, crucify him. And as we will see today, that most of the people that remained as Christ's life is being extinguished upon the cross, they too will, will spurn the all-important work of Christ as high priest as well. 
You see, brothers and sisters, for the majority, Jesus was not the deliverer nor the redeemer that people were willing to claim for their own. Jesus was not the redeemer that they wanted. And Isaiah says to us this. He says to us in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ was not the Savior that, that man expected. Jesus did not come as a man of great wealth, but he came a man who was poor. Jesus did not come arrayed in in royal garments, but rather he came arrayed in common ones. Jesus did not have a a legion of, of soldiers that followed him around and that would fight for him at the drop of the hat, but rather he had only 12. One who betrayed him so that he would be turned over to die and eleven who ran away when Jesus was arrested by the angry mob. Right? To those around Him, to those who grew up around Him in Nazareth, there is nothing special about Jesus to them. And now as Jesus hangs upon the cross for many who are standing at the foot of it, there is nothing special about Christ's death either. And yet all of this, all that Jesus was made to experience, we need to understand, was for us. It was for us. It was this despised Savior that the people did not want that we needed. It was this despised Jesus who nobody desired because He had no, no beauty or majesty to Him that we needed. Right? We needed Christ. We needed the God-man. Right? We needed the man Jesus Christ and we needed God who would dwell amongst us. We needed the life and death of Christ so that we would not die and live forever with Christ. We needed the humility of Christ so that we might experience life in glory with Christ. We needed Christ to be rejected by men so that, brothers and sisters, we would not be rejected by God. And this is what what is accomplished here in the cross, which is the very height of of Christ's suffering. It is there that that the Lord experiences the the very... a pinnacle of His suffering upon the cross. But that suffering just didn't begin at the cross. It really started with the Incarnation. Right? The humiliation and suffering of Christ continued then throughout, throughout the entirety of His life. If you remember, it continues to Gethsemane when Jesus is coming to the realization that He is entering into the tribunal of God in which He is going to face the wrath of God and He is overcome with anguish and anxiety and stress. Right? All, of, all of his life, all of the humiliation and suffering that he, is, that he has had to endure reaches its peak at the cross. For it's at the cross that now Jesus is drinking the, the cup of God's wrath that has been given to him. And brothers and sisters, he has to drink it in full until there is not a drop left. And it is only after he has drank every last drop that the suffering will end. But I want us to see before it ends... In this moment, as Christ is hanging from the cross, what we need to see here is the justice of God and the mercy of God 
embracing one another ever so sweetly and wonderfully for the sake of sinners. You see, it's in this moment, right, as Christ hangs from the cross, that sinners, rich and poor, young and old, idolater, murderer and liar, have hope. It is in Christ's death that all sinners now have hope. But for that hope, right, for us to have hope, Christ had to experience agony and pain and misery beyond belief, much more than we can even describe with words. There is, there is nothing that compared in the rest of Christ's life to what he experienced upon the cross. Right, we can add up none of it. None of the beatings Christ experienced. None of the betrayal of his own friends he experienced. Not the rejection of a whole nation did he experience. Not the sleepless nights in in hunger nor the temptations of Satan. All combined can compare to the sufferings that Christ experiences upon the cross. And we know this. We know this because through all of those other things, Jesus remains silent. He continues entrusting his soul to his Father. But now, in this moment, Jesus cannot keep silent any longer. He cannot keep silent to the suffering any longer. And now he, he cries out to the Lord, we're told. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we read that, brothers and sisters, we, can have, we can't even begin to comprehend the, the soul agonizing torment that Christ endured for the guilt of our sin on the cross. And yet, what made it weigh all the heavier upon Christ as He hung from the cross was the fact that in this moment that He needed His Father's loving presence, He felt all alone. In this moment, at the very height of Christ's obedience to His Father, it is as if the Father has now forsaken Him and forgotten all about Him. And this leads us then into our first point this morning, brothers and sisters, which is Christ's feeling of desertion. Christ's feeling of desertion. Now last week in verse 25, we were told that Christ is hung upon the cross at at the third hour, or what is 9 a.m. Our text this morning then we see picks up, it tells us, at the sixth hour. So it would be noon. And at noon, we're told, something miraculous occurs. And I say something miraculous because it's not something that comes about through the natural order, but rather it's something that comes about through the immediate power of God. And what is that? We're told in the sixth hour, as Jesus hangs upon the cross, darkness covers the whole land for three hours. Darkness covers the land for three hours. Now, there are many opinions to you know why this darkness came or what this darkness symbolizes. But I think as we read uh, the, the text in this context, and when we read it in light of, of all of Scripture, I think we can really kind of uh, pinpoint uh, two uh, reasons for this darkness and, and, or what this darkness uh, symbolizes. And so first, uh, darkness in Scripture, what we see is that it, it often comes when God judges sin. Right? So darkness is brought oftentimes when God judges sin. And so darkness is associated with judgment. Uh, We can think back to earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 24. uh, When Jesus describes his return, what does he say? When he returns, he says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light. Why is that? Because when he returns, he is returning to judge sin. 
Right? So we see the judgment of sin and darkness. There's that connection there. We can think back to the book of Exodus. What's the ninth plague that God sends upon the Egyptians? Darkness for three days. The ninth plague is darkness for three days. That is God's judgment, His punishment upon them for, because Pharaoh would not release the Israelites to go into the wilderness to worship God. Think about what's the tenth plague. Right? The, the, the taking of the life of the firstborn of all in Egypt. And as the Lord is speaking to Moses and Aaron and telling them what's going to happen and to inform the people to, to put blood uh, on their posts so that the angel of death will pass them by, when does he say it's going to occur? At night. Right? It's going to happen in darkness. That is when he's going to extinguish the life of the firstborn. And so we see from Scripture that darkness oftentimes is associated with judgment. And so I think it's safe to say that's, that's, that's one of the things that symbolizes for us in our text here. Right? As, as Jesus hangs from the cross, God in His judgment of sin is punishing Him, and so darkness comes over the land. Right? Darkness comes over the land as a symbol. God is punishing sin. But I don't believe that this is all that darkness means, or that this is all that the darkness means to convey. Now remember, the, the author to the Hebrews is very clear over and over again that here Jesus is acting as high priest. That Jesus is acting as high priest. We're also told here in our text then that, that Christ, when Christ dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. And so I think that there is a, a connection to be made here. Now we have to understand that in the Old Testament, there, there hung a veil uh, which separated the holy place from the most holy place uh, where the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant stood. And the author to the Hebrews in, in chapter 9 tells us that once a year, that only the high priest was allowed to, to enter behind the curtain to offer up a sacrifice to atone for the people. But then we have to ask, what, what did stepping behind that curtain do? And I think it, it did two things. Right? One, it kept everyone else out from going behind there except for the high priest. But what else did it do? What else did that curtain do when he stepped behind it to offer up the sacrifice? It did not allow the people to see the sacrifice. It did not allow the people to see the sacrifice. And I think the same thing is occurring in our text today. A curtain of darkness comes over the land so that the people could not see the sacrifice of Christ. As Jesus, so to speak, steps behind the veil as the high priest, he offers up the Lamb to God. Only this time, the high priest who steps behind that curtain of darkness is himself the sacrifice. So that Christ steps behind this veil of darkness. He offers up himself to his Father as that perfect spotless Lamb who is to take away the sins of his people and bring reconciliation. But just like with the physical temple, Jesus, the true temple, Right? Jesus has come now as a true temple. Just like you couldn't see the sacrifice in the physical temple. Likewise, the Father covers the land with darkness so that you cannot see the sacrifice in the true spiritual temple, which is Christ. And so in those three hours, from, from 9 a.m. to noon, God's judgment is just being poured out upon the Son as the high priest offers this lamb to his Father. Only the lamb that he offers is himself as he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sin and also in order to secure eternal redemption for the sons and daughters of the living God. 
And as this judgment is being poured out upon him, and as Jesus is voluntarily offering up of himself, he experiences this immense pain and suffering. But he is experiencing this immense pain of suffering as a divine payment through divine love in order that he might satisfy divine justice. Okay, this is a, we need to see this. Christ offering himself on the cross is a divine payment for sin. And he does it out of divine love in order to satisfy divine justice. That is what we see in the cross. And there is no other way it could be but this. This is why Paul, speaking of God's righteous judgment in Romans chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, says this. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil. And it is our evil, not Christ's. Right? It is our guilt of sin and not His for which He now feels the weight of God's wrath and fury coming down upon Him. And Christ, as He hangs there, feels the incomprehensible distress of it all. So much so that after three hours He, he cries out with a loud voice, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? For those of you here who are parents, I'm sure you can think back maybe to at least one time in which maybe you were doing something and, and one of your children kind of shrieked or, or, or yelled out with a loud shout and it, all of a sudden your heart just falls in your chest and you immediately spring up and run to see what's wrong. Uh, now thankfully most times it's just an over-exaggeration or overreaction. They're you know frightened by something and, and they just let out this this large scream, but this is not the case with Christ. Right? There, there is no over-exaggeration about the pain and the suffering that He is enduring, but I want us to see this. He doesn't cry out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the physical torment that Christ is suffering. But rather, He cries out because this suffering that He is dealing with, both physically and within His soul, is he feels right now he's experiencing all alone apart from the Father. He feels right now in this moment that the Father has deserted him and this is the reason that he cries out. He's asking, where are you, Father? Why have you hid your face from me in the moment that I need you most? That is what he is crying out to his Father. In this moment, his soul is, is burdened as it is deprived of the heavenly comfort and joy that he had, as it's temporarily suspended in Christ. But we need to understand that it's temporarily suspended in Christ according to his human nature and according to Christ as mediator. He doesn't feel the presence of God as Christ the mediator. But we also need to see that Christ's feeling of desertion right, satisfies the punishment for sin that ought to have been done to us for our willful desertion of God. Christ's feeling of desertion is the punishment we deserve for willfully deserting God. We deserve to be forsaken by God. We deserve to be left by God. And so in our stead, Christ endures that being forsaken in our stead. In our place, He endures that forsaking as our mediator. 
And desertion, if you think about it, really is the, the ultimate penalty for sin. Right? Desertion is the ultimate penalty for sin. Think about uh, Matthew 25. When Jesus returns at the, at the final judgment, what is going to happen? Right? They're going to gather uh, the sheep and the goats. And he's going to say to the sheep, you to eternal uh, glory. And to the goats, you to eternal destruction. In, in that ultimate penalty, what is, what is he doing? He is banishing them away from his loving presence forever. Right? He is deserting the ungodly. He is forsaking them of his loving presence forever. That is a part of the curse. And that is the part of the curse that Christ endured for us. That is the part of the curse that we deserve. As William Hendrickson says, Hell came to Calvary that day. And the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. And yet, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see that even in our Lord's complaint, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want us all to see are those beautiful words of Christ. My God, my God. Right? We need to understand this. Even in Christ's darkest hour, even though he does not feel the, the loving countenance of his Father upon, upon him anymore. Yet Christ, all the while, is firmly persuaded of the Father's love for him. He's still firmly persuaded of that. Let me give you an illustration, maybe, to, that we might better understand what's going on here. In the summertime, you go out into the sun, right? And the, the, the sun's out there, bright shining. And it, the, those rays of the sun beat down upon you. And so that you know the sun's there, right? It, you, you feel the warmness of the sun. But as summers go in Wisconsin, right, you oftentimes get clouds in that They come in front of the sun and they block it so that you no longer feel the warmth of the sun any longer. It is as if the sun is no longer there. I think this is an illustration of kind of, of what we see here in our text today. Because we need to understand that, that God never left His Son. Right? The Father never stopped loving His Son. His love never lessened, nor was it ever lost. Right? He was always there. But He just hid His loving countenance from the Son, just as the clouds hide the warmth that we feel from the Son. It is actually the Son who is the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of His person. Right? How could He ever forsake His own image? It's Jesus who says in John chapter 10, verse 17, The Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life for the sheep. So how could the Father stop loving the Son as He hung upon the cross? He loves Him because He hung upon the cross. In John chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus declares to His disciples, You will leave me, but I am not alone. Why? Because the Father is with me. Right? And so in a real sense, brothers and sisters, we can say that the Father deserted Christ, but He deserted Him according to His human nature and with respect to Christ feeling the loving, uh, merciful countenance of His Father upon Him. But in another sense, right? He never forsook the Son. Right? How, how can God forsake God? How can God forsake Himself? He can't. And yet, what a thrilling reality, though, that ought, to, that ought to be to us when we understand that. that. That God, the Father, did not forget His Son. And so He likewise will not forget, 
forget any of you for whom he sent the Son into the world to die for. Right? What a great and glorious reality that is. And in fact, as Jesus cries out to the Father in verse 37, right, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he lets out that loud cry and he breathes his last breath and he dies. We see that the Father responds to his pleads and his cries. The Father responds to his pleads and his cries. Death on the cross usually took days. You know, that's one of the reasons why death was on the cross was so horrible. It took days, but for Christ, it took six hours to atone for the, the sins of his people. And once the atonement was made, the suffering for sin was done. But God's love never ceased for His Son. And so we must likewise understand God's love for you and I will not cease either. And yet we have to understand that, that when we ourselves begin to feel uh, that, that lack of God's presence, that distance of God, the loss of God's favor, right, we need to think back to this event. Right? We need to think back to the love of God. For God's love is real and it's true and it's faithful and it does not fail. And He demonstrated that love to us that while yet we were still sinners, He sent His Son into the world to die for us. And there is no greater demonstration of love than the sending of the Son to die for us. But for each of you here today, I have to ask you something. Right? I have to ask you, in these moments in which you yourselves feel that distance from God, when you yourselves feel as if God's loving presence or, or merciful hand is, is being hid from you. I ask, does it bother you as it bothered Christ so deeply? When you don't feel or experience the, the loving presence of your Father, does it affect you in any way? Does it affect you so much that you cannot go on without it? Does it affect you so much that it, that it troubles the very depths of your soul so that you, like Christ, can only call out to God, My Father, My Father, until His loving presence returns. Brothers and sisters, we ought to agonize over that when it feels as if God's loving presence is distant from us. But also what we need to realize is, is why is God's uh, distance, why, why is there this distance? Why is He hiding Himself from the Son here? It's because of sin. And so the question is, brothers and sisters, are you not experiencing the loving presence of God because there is sin in your life? That is something that each and every one of us must examine for ourselves. And if it is, repent and cry out to God. Right? And He will reveal Himself again to you. My fear, though, is that there are so many people out here who profess Christ but don't know what it is to experience that loving presence of God that that they don't know what it is to not experience it, and so they never cry out for it. But brothers and sisters, our proper response ought to be like Jesus. It ought to be a complaint and not an accusation. We are never, ever, ever to bring a charge against God, but rather like Christ, we are just to cry out for help. Right? Because if you are a believer... Right? It should distress your soul if you don't feel the presence of God because it is only Christ who makes the soul of the Christian happy. This takes us then to point number two, brothers and sisters, which is the tearing of the veil. The tearing of the veil. Please look with me once more at verses 35 to 38. <clears throat> and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with some sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, 
Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Here we see that as Jesus cries out, the mocking continues. Right? The, the Roman soldier went and ran, and, uh, stuck a, a sponge in, in sour wine to give it to Jesus to see if they could, they could keep this going longer. To, to, to see, they say in verse 36, wait, let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. Right? This is, they're, they're mocking Jesus in this moment. But in verse 37, Jesus lets out this final cry, breathes his last breath and dies. And it's at that moment that something truly incredible happens. Right? The, 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 the veil of the temple, we're told, is torn in two. And what's so incredible about that is that this is three in the afternoon. So you know what's happening at this time? The high priest is in the temple preparing the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And what happens? God tears the veil in two. And why does God tear the veil in two? He tears the veil in two to demonstrate that His presence is no longer in the temple. It is no longer in there. And that temple now is nothing but empty shadows of the true reality of the One who has come. And of who in His body and through His blood has brought a cessation to the old covenant ceremonies and rituals. Right? God speaks in this event demonstrating that the old way to God has been done away with. It has ceased. And Jesus Christ by His substitutionary death has brought a new path, a new way to God. And it is only through the true high priest who is Christ. And so from that moment on, the, the old covenant ceremonies are terminated because of the work of Christ. This is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Right? He's saying, you can't go back to the old, the old ways. Don't turn back. You can't reattach the, the veil, make the two one again. You can't reinstitute the sacrificial system. This is why we don't need a rebuilt temple again. This is why we don't need to reinstall Jewish practices. It is because Christ is the once and for all sacrifice for sin and it is through Christ's blood, blood that He has brought peace between us and God and gave, given to His people access to Him as well. Right? This is what Christ accomplished. This is why the author to the Hebrews then can say in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Right? Christ, we need to see in establishing the new covenant, as the author to the Hebrews says, has made the old covenant obsolete. This is why Paul can then say about Jewish practices in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? Christ has come. These are done away with. Right? Christ in His death has removed all that stood in the way of coming to Him. So that through Christ, we now become a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a chosen race, as Peter calls the church in First Peter. 
This is what we have been made now in Christ. John says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, He made us a kingdom, priests to God His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, we have to understand that sin destroyed that, that fellowship, that immediate presence that man had with God in the Garden of Eden. Right? Sin, sin broke that. It, 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 and it brought it into a state of disrepair. And so that we could only enter into the presence of God through the, 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 the high priest who would go behind the veil in the temple. And it's interesting, uh, if you think about, you know, go back later and look at Genesis chapter 3. What are we told after God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden for sin? What are we told happens in verse 24? God places cherubim before the tree of life and a flaming sword uh, that, that spins in all different directions so that what? So that Adam and Eve can't come back to lay hold by their own strivings to that, to eternal life, to that, to the tree of life. Now, do you know what was embroidered on the veil that the, that the priest stepped behind in order to offer up the sacrifice? We're told in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, God commands that cherubim be artfully stitched in, guarding all but one from entering into the presence of God. Right? But with the tearing of the veil, this is what we need to see. It is now over. And now the, the way of eternal life has been opened to all people but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as that royal priesthood who now have access to God, my question to you is, do you make use of that access? Do you make use of that access that Christ has purchased for you? Are you making use of the throne of grace? Are you entering into the presence of God and calling out and drawing near to Him and not just for things that you want? But do you make use of the throne of grace in order to confess your sin and repent of it? Do you make use of the, the throne of grace to ask for strength and mercy that you might not succumb to temptation in your life? This is what the death of Christ has opened up for us. Access to the Maker of heaven and earth. Right? Access to God our Father. Access to the fountain of all grace. Access to the One in whom we live and move and have our being. And access, brothers and sisters, that not all have. For the one who persists in rebellion against Christ, there remains a veil over their hearts and over their eyes so that they cannot understand spiritual things. And so they are unable to cry out to God in prayer with any confidence that He is listening to them. That access to Christ is a, is a privilege that only the saints have. And so, brothers and sisters, let us make use of it and make use of it often. This leads us to our third and final point, which will be a brief point this morning. And that is, what is the proper response? What is the proper response? What is the proper response to learning about what Christ has done? And having to endure, feeling forsaken by His Father, and having to endure that that death on the cross for our sin. Right? What is the proper response when we learn about what it means for that temple veil to be torn in two? Well, I think the answer for us is in the, these following verses. So please look with me starting in verse 39 and to the end. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, what I want us to see here initially and first is the miserable condition of the sinner. Right, The miserable state that they are in, especially the sinner who continues to harden himself against Christ and the gospel. Right, This miraculous event takes place where darkness covers the land for three hours out of nowhere. As the Son of God hangs upon the cross, the curtain veil is torn in two. The, the high priest's see this, the elders, the scribes, they know all of this, and yet none of them come out and say, you know what, we were wrong. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. No, but rather, what was it? It was a pagan, a centurion who sees all of this and who finally proclaims, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, we don't know for certain if the centurion was a true believer if he, if he just seen all that happened, he heard what Christ said about himself, and so he comes to the conclusion, what he said must be true. He, he must truly be that. That possibly could have been his state. Or he could have been someone who, who believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior and as the Son of God. We're just not sure. But nonetheless, what we do know is that this man's confession is true. And so what we need to learn from this is that this man's confession ought to be our confession. It ought to be our confession, especially if we say that Christ's death on the cross was for us. And it ought to be our confession all the time. It ought to be our confession in good times and in bad. It ought to be our confession if we're living in prosperity or poverty. It ought to be our confession when we're amongst Christians and those who despise Christ. Christ's name is a name that we must wear openly and boldly and proudly before all. For we are His. We are not our own. He, he bought us with a price and that price was the blood of Christ. So we need to steadfastly and without fail, so long as we live, continue to look to Christ and look to Christ crucified as the only remedy for the saints. Never allowing ourselves to even think that there is any other possibility or remedy other than Christ. Right? Never thinking about our own self-righteousness our own goodness, our own ingenuity, our own wisdom. We were saved because of none of that, but rather we were saved all because of Christ and what He did. It was His blood. It was His righteousness. It was His suffering. And it was His death. All of Christ. We also, as we draw to a close, need to see the example of these women. We need to see the example of these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. When Christ's disciples, men, took off and abandoned Christ, who remained? Women. Women remained there by Christ. They demonstrated true love and supreme devotion to their Lord. So let us learn from these women. Let us learn to not wilt under the pressure of this world, but rather to remain next to our, the side of our Lord at all times and never forsake Him and to never leave Him, but, but to cling and grasp onto Him tightly all the days of our lives. And how can we not, looking at what Christ has done for us? Right? The excellency of Christ's death for us is so gloriously seen 
in that He freed us from sin. He, he redeemed us from slavery. He reconciled us to God and He made us righteous in Him. This, brothers and sisters, is what that all-sufficient death of Christ has accomplished for us. Right? A death of Christ, the God-man, a death that, that you and I could not achieve because the punishment for our sin was infinite punishment. But herein lies the good news. Right? The death that Christ died for us was of infinite worth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. Oh, how humble we draw near to You this morning as we recognize our, our own shame and guiltiness before You. And how, Father, there is none righteous, there is none who do good, no, not one. And we are so thankful, Father, that You chose us in Christ Jesus from eternity past that we might have forgiveness of sin and everlasting life with You because of the work of Christ on the cross. Cause us this day to take time to think about it, to consider Christ crucified and then respond in faith and live out our faith according to that confession that Christ is ours and that the death He died was ours. So Father, we pray all these things as we gather before Your throne of grace this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.